Welcome to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show. Our show is a topical talk show where we focus on women. So our title is Why Women? As an advocate for women and a social psychologist, I think it's important to shine a light on successful women and for all of us to learn and be inspired by those women. We are going to be talking about the challenges women face, but in this month of women's history, I'd like to focus also on women as change makers, women as leaders. In Los Angeles, we've been very fortunate to see a shift to leadership by women in many segments. As you probably know, the Board of Supervisors is five women at this point in time. And we have a Department of Water and Power, which is led for the first time by all women commissioners. That Department of Water Water and Power is $6 billion strong and has over 11,000 employees. Today, we're going to be featuring two women that are commissioners on the board of the LA Department of Water and Power and take a deep dive into what made them successful with leading and succeeding so we can get tips and advice from them. But we'll also talk about the work they're doing, the very important work for our area on water and on power as we grow as a city and as a county. So welcome to the show, Cynthia McLean-Hill. Cynthia is the chair of the board. She has been the president of the LA Department of Water and Power Commission for some time. And prior to that, Cynthia has been extremely successful in other sectors of Los Angeles and frankly, of California. Cynthia is an active attorney She was elected president of the Board of Water and Power Commissioners on July 28, 2020. And prior to that, she had served as the board vice president. But very quickly, let me announce some of the other roles that Cynthia McLean Hill has played. Cynthia and I know each other from 2008 and 2009 when she served as president of the National Association of Women Business Owners nationally. That's NABO. She was also past president of the L.A. Chamber, as I was, but she has gone on to represent our community's perspective in so many areas. She was appointed to serve on the city's community redevelopment agency. She has served on the California Coastal Commission, the California Fair Political Practices Commission, Cal EPA, Environmental Justice Advisory Working Group, and the Los Angeles City Small and Local Business Advisory Commission. The list goes on, but I'd like to bring Cynthia on to give us her perspective. Cynthia McLean-Hill, welcome to the show. Thank you, Renee. Thank you for having me. Now, Cynthia, in this first part of the show, I'd like to talk a little bit about your trajectory. Um, When you think back over the years, what do you think have been the keys to your success and what advice would you give to others? Uh, Interesting question. I think first and foremost, uh, leadership is a decision. And uh, and my advice to others, and particularly to women, is to make a decision about who you want to be, what you want to be, and to, and no matter how or how big your dream is, to take a moment and make that dream bigger. The biggest challenge, I think, for women is the constraints that we put on ourselves and uh, an inability to recognize that we should be in roles of power and decision-making. Once you make that decision, the path gets a whole lot simpler and a lot clearer. 
I like that. <clears throat> you know, Cynthia, I think being purposeful in your choices, right? Making the decision. When I developed the, uh, the theme for this show, I said lead and succeed. And one of the reasons I put lead first is I think women think they have to be at a certain level of success before they will step into leadership roles. And we see that repeatedly, whereas men will step into a role, even though they may be only qualified with five out of 10 of the items requested on the job. And women wait until they have eight out of 10. So the opportunity to lead and be bolder is upon us. We just have to step into it. Did you do that early? Did you make a decision to be a leader early in your life? And if so, why? When? Gosh, um, I decided when I was uh, in my teens, early teens, that I wanted to be a lawyer, maybe 12, 13 years old. And I made that decision because I was a history buff. And I'm, you know, telling on myself when I go back that far. But um, what I understood about the opportunities that I had before me was that they had been bought by lawyers and, and, and people that were involved in the civil rights movement and teachers and ministers. And I was just so inspired by what they achieved through government and through the courts that I wanted to be able to make a similar contribution and decided the best path toward that was to become a lawyer. And from that point until I graduated uh, and, and passed the bar at 23, that's what I set my mind to. That was the goal and that was, that was what I did. And my purpose was to be prepared to take up, you know, sort of the cause of expanding opportunities for others, to be ready to do whatever came my way that would allow me to pursue that path. Where were you? Where, were, where did you grow up, Cynthia? I grew up in Orange County. I'm a native Angelino, but I grew up in, in Orange County. Uh, I went to uh, school in Orange County at a time where in a school of 4,500 kids that were, uh, you know, at 4,500 kids, there were a total of 11 black kids. Oh, my. So I grew up in a very isolated environment, uh, largely because my mother was raised in the segregated South. Ah. And she was bust past a brand new white high school for a black high school that she felt offered her lesser opportunities. And her mission in life became making sure that wherever those opportunities were, that's where her kids would be. I'm the firstborn, so I was the first recipient uh -huh. of that experiment. Hence, Orange County, all white school. And it turns out she wasn't wrong. She wasn't wrong. It turns out, I mean, you are leading and you are making a difference and expanding opportunity for other people. Uh, did you step into student government at all when you were in high school or college? Uh, not in high school, but in college, I did. I went to UCLA. At UCLA, I was um, on their judicial board. I became their, uh, I was the vice president of the school. I was the first African-American female to hold the title of president of the undergraduate student body. So I jumped right in, got really busy. In fact, I continue to credit UCLA with the place that um, everything that I learned about the world sort of began there. And all of my expert, my ability to experiment with leadership, to experiment with collaboration, to just say, why not 
you know, why not me? Right, right. <laughs> I showed up at UCLA. It was really well supported. And uh, I continue to love the place. I think that's fantastic. I know you went to public schools all the way through, which is a real testament to our system, which I love. And, and I think you're right. I like that word experiment, right? You were pushing the boundaries and learning what was possible. Uh, was there anyone in school that had an influence? I heard your mother, obviously, and your parents had a great influence. What about others? Oh, I had a terrific high school history teacher who was really fabulous. His name was Ruben Sepulveda. I will never forget him. Um, and he is actually, when you talk about things that you learn and successes and failures or disappointments, um, I always, I, I, I gave a college address uh, years back. And in that speech, I shared like my deepest regret, which is, which occurred in that classroom. In that classroom, we had an assignment where we were to put on the board the name, the qualifications to become president of the United States. And I was in the 10th grade and I was a real smart math kid in the 10th grade. And I'm in my class of all white kids. And I decided one of the qualifications was that you had to be white and you had to be male. Oh, whoa, whoa. And so that was what I wanted to put on the board. And, you know, Ruben Sepulveda, he put it on the board and he let me argue my case. And we went back and forth at the end of that class. That that was on the board. I won that point. You won that debate. And you had to be male. When I shared that story later, what I what I what I learned from that story very, very much later um, was obviously there was a kid four years younger than me named Barack Obama, neither white nor male. And the difference between me and him was at that time, I wanted to be president. I was just sure it wasn't possible. Oh, my goodness. So that's your regret? That is my regret, winning that point, being so sure about what was not possible. Possible. In the 10th grade, put a ceiling on what I could believe for myself. That kid, four years younger than me, didn't have that ceiling because he believed in the possibility. And that's the thing that I try to remind young people about now and young women, that it's really about you know, being open to the possibility. Don't constrain. So winning that argument um, said a whole lot about the course of my life because that wasn't the only thing that I didn't believe was possible. That's a powerful story. Cynthia McLean Hill sharing with us her experiences uh, growing up. And now she's such a leader and the president of the L.A. Department of Water and Power Commission. You're listening to the Renee Frazier Show, Why Women. Cynthia, that's a fascinating story. How you put we put our own limits on ourselves in terms of our mindsets. So your advice is to think beyond that. And I love the fact that you talk about Barack Obama. I understand you also had a chance to meet one of the first ladies. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Can we talk about that in our next segment? We're going to have to pause here for news and traffic. And we'll be right back. You're listening to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women? And we're talking with the remarkable Cynthia McLean Hill, who's a leader in our Los Angeles community and throughout the nation. She's going to give us her story of how she met one of our first ladies. Stay tuned to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show.
Welcome back to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show. We're talking about women as change makers and leading in Los Angeles. We have on the show today, Cynthia McLean Hill, who's president of the LA Department of Water and Power Commission. And just to remind you, LADWP is a $6 billion institution with 11,000 employees. Cynthia has a track record of leadership and history, and she just told us a story about how we shouldn't limit ourselves by our perceptions and sometimes the unwritten rules that guide our lives. But I'm going to ask her now about meeting a first lady, a couple of them, actually. Cynthia, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Can you tell us about meeting at least in particular, Michelle Obama, because I think she was a hall, she set a hallmark, at least in my mind, she has been an amazing first lady and leader in our world. Uh, and I, I never had the opportunity to meet her in person. Please tell us the circumstances and, and what that experience was like. Well, I actually had the great experience of meeting her a couple of times. Once before her husband had secured the nomination uh, up in San Francisco, she was telling a story about her first about her requirements of a mate. And uh, again, smart mouth. I'm in the back of the room and she's describing all these attributes. And I looked at her and I said, yeah, he had to be tall. <laughs> Very tall woman. And she sort of looked up and said, you're right about that. Um, but later after um, uh, the uh, the then candidate or then Senator Obama had secured the Democratic nomination. I was uh, fortunate enough to host a fundraiser for her at my office, which was really um, quite spectacular for all of us. Um, I think that she, I agree with you that her impact was really quite extraordinary. And I think that one of the things that she was able to do was to integrate the role of mother and caretaker with the role of um, leader and influencer. And so often, and certainly in politics and in leadership, women are so often forced to fracture themselves. Yes. And she proved, and she provided a really strong example of what it looked like to be fiercely committed to her family. Absolutely. And at the same time, incredibly impactful as she moved forward, really complex and important um, policy agendas as part of her husband's administration. So that was quite a balancing act. Uh, And I think that that really opened, expanded for a lot of women um, what it can look like to, to be fully present in every part of your life. Absolutely. And to be able to live your life, as you just said, fully the way you are and show that part of you that is a mother. I mean, reading her book, I listened to it. So she was reading it, which was a very moving experience. Uh, You hear about the importance of family and how that guided her in her relationship with Barack and some of the, all of the thinking. And of course, having her mother in the White House to help her raise the two girls and uh, the way in which she raised them. I mean, I only look for wonderful things from the two of them. And uh, we'll see if either one of them wants to join politics. I have a feeling (laughs) it may not be on their slate, but who's to know? Thinking outside and thinking bolder is right. Well, what a wonderful experience. Now, when you talk about impact and integrating your real self into the work, I've seen that with you, Cynthia, and congratulations to you. Now, I've been watching the Department of Water and Power Commission meetings recently. I used to sit through those when I handled Metropolitan Water District. I would watch the Department of Water and Power, and it was all older men. And I have to say, 
there's a different tempo and a different level of uh, collaboration that I hear in the meetings. But that's my observation. Give us your thoughts about what you are accomplishing with the commission. Well, I think you're right about the level of collaboration. There's something about the five women on that board and our real sense of both urgency, but also sense of respect and regard for one another. Um, there's something to be said for coming into a space without a sense of entitlement about it, <laughs> a little more humility that causes you to be open both to collaboration with your colleagues and collaboration with the department. Um, that said, in addition to, and we've got a range of skill sets, uh, uh, some of the most talented and extraordinary women that, that I've ever worked with. Um, but in addition to our focus on sustainability and on you know, the, the hard nuts and bolts issues associated with providing water and power, uh, with debt affordability, et cetera, we've also had a really focused agenda around equity and been determined to meet the moment, both as it relates to access to water and power, which is a critically important issue to people all across the city of Los Angeles, yes. regardless of one's ability to pay that was really dramatically emphasized during the pandemic. But also as we look at how, um, how we undertake our climate transition, our transition to our climate change transition, doing that in an equitable and just way, looking at the impacts, not just on air quality, but looking at the impacts on neighborhoods, the right. impacts on infrastructure, on jobs, right. really you know, being expansive in how we bring everyone along. That's been a very critical um, concern of this board. Uh, and, and then, you know, internally, I recently uh, gave an address where I had to acknowledge the department of its, you know, nearly 11,000 employees is only 25% women. That's a shame. That's amazing. 50% of the population, only 25% women. How can that be? It is an incredible embarrassment. <laughs> And one that we have also taken on with a new and with a renewed figure and a new set of, and a new focus. And some of it is just challenging old notions of what's possible for women. Right. Um, and part of it's just caring about it, you know, right. putting attention on it, spotlight on it and what setting measure, goals. Right. Yeah. Sure. Setting goals. Right. What you measure, you achieve. And. Um, and our board is very interested in a change in that particular metric as well. We've established a women's council. We are listening very acutely to um, how you how the department's policies um, and protocols impact the employment opportunities and the employment trajectory of women. We talk about women in non-traditional roles like that should be a thing. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Way and, behind the times, you know, when you think about it, way behind the times. I understand that in some of the field operations, there weren't bathrooms for women. Absolutely. We were at last last year, that was one of the things that was raised by our by a, a woman on a panel in our field staff that something as simple as having a place to go to the bathroom was something that the department had not addressed. And it's really first listening 
and then insisting that these things be addressed. I remember being at a meeting where I was being told that one of the challenges for women in certain work was um, their strength or their ability to perform the work. Uh, I've got a, a child that's been a um, elite athlete for um, half of her adult life and she, or half of her life that is, and she and her friends were much are much stronger than any of the men on the dais and wow. any of the men in that room. I immediately pulled up a picture of her bench pressing 350 pounds. She weighed <laughs> all of 130 pounds wet. And wow. just said, I don't want to hear this anymore. We have to do better. So um, that is a, a focus that we are, um, are, are, are dealing with on a pretty persistent good for you um, good for you because there's another phenomenon i think in some of these fields of nepotism right bringing in nephews and sons and uh, kind of promoting that within the family is that something else that's being examined at department of water and power well the department of water and power has actually taken on a, a much larger more structural look institutional look at dei issues we created an office of dei it's at the assistant general manager level all of human resources training um you know all of the out um all of the recruitment um, now fall in the DEI under the DEI director, along with procurement, supplier diversity, and a bunch of other pieces. So that's the way that we're looking at it. Um, and some of it is nepotism, but a lot of it is just, you know, you either know or you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's making sure that we are doing our outreach and recruitment in a way that builds a pipeline broader than the people who happen to be insiders and who will tell the people they know. Right. Working with LA Unified and with other school districts around the city, reaching out to foster youth, really intentionally thinking about how we make um, both our jobs and our, our jobs that are in offices, you know, engineering STEM, but also right. our jobs that are field related and STEM oriented, um, making sure that people understand what those jobs are. Yes. And in particular, exposing women to those jobs. That's that's the work for this department. And it's the only way that we will survive into the future, because as we look out into the future, we've got to build a more diverse workplace workplace. And in my mind, the uh, thing that DWP ought to be is a. Um, workforce development agency. In addition to all of the other things it can impact, when you look at what we need to do, right. uh, impacting workforce and building a stronger, more vibrant workforce is a critical contribution that we can make to the economy of Los Angeles. That's an, another impact that you will have. I, I think that's remarkable, Cynthia, the work that you're doing, because it will have ripple effects. And the idea of hiring intentionally, doing your outreach with intention around these goals will make a difference. And I know you highlighted at the meeting, so people people are, are on point and realize they have to be. We're going to have to close in, a, in about a half a minute. Let's talk about how women in leadership make a difference. Women in leadership make a difference because often their focus is more nuanced and broader. Um, and at a time when people matter, uh, women tend to focus not just on the nuts and bolts of a job, but they focus on the people, on the organization in a way that sometimes men do not. 
Um, so my, in my experience, the impact that women make is just bringing a much more holistic, much more nuanced view to any leadership role that they have. And for a lot of us, it is about having an impact and keeping that door open for others. So we work hard at it. Um, and I think that's, that's the biggest change that I see when you bring women into the room. Well said. Uh, Cynthia McLean Hill, who's president of the LA Department of Water and Power Commission, has shared some great stories with us today. Thank you, Cynthia. I think you're right. We're, women are more nuanced and more concerned about people. People matter. And we look at those aspects and it's all people. As you said, when you're not entitled to the position and you're in the position, you take it very seriously and you want to feel and see the impact. And I can already see the impact you're having, Cynthia. Thank you for all the great work that you're doing at the Department of Water and Power. Well, thank you so much. Happy to have been here. Thank you all for listening to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show. We'll be right back with another commissioner to hear more about the sustainability and resilience work being done for our city and our area. This is the Renee Frazier Show. Why women as we feature women change makers and women leaders. Now we're going to be talking with Nicole Neiman Brady. Nicole is CEO and Director of Sustainable Development Acquisition Corps. You're going to see that she has spent a career in sustainability, renewable energy, water, and power. She is currently also a principal and member of the investment committee of an organization or company, I should say, called Renewable Resources Group. And she serves on the LA Department Water of Power Commission. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Thank you. Delighted to have you, Nicole. We're going to have a couple of segments where we have an opportunity to speak. And I'd, I'd like to start by talking about your path to success, your experiences. So many of our listeners listen with a keen ear to understand what lessons can they take away. And uh, understanding what your path has involved will help them see themselves and what's possible. Could you take us back to when you were growing up and people that had the biggest influence on you, particularly with regards to the field you're in now? For sure. So uh, I have to start with my mother Um, and not so much for the field that I am in, but much more for about being a professional woman. And in a time where when you went to school, people asked what your father did. um, I answered, well, actually, my mother Good for you. Yeah. And it was a conversation I think I had so many times, uh, hundreds of times, probably. Um, And she uh, is and was a a lawyer, very successful uh, in corporate America. Uh, She led uh, Time Warner's um, uh, intellectual property division. Fascinating. And uh, when I was much younger, I, I used to joke that she was Bugs Bunny and Superman's lawyer. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was it was a, a fun job I think she had. And it also showed me that you can in some ways have it all, um, you know, or at least try to balance um, family and, and professional success. And so it made me uh, feel invincible. Right. Um, right. And uh, I, I think that was a phenomenal mentality to start anything I did um, that I could do it. 
Anybody else could do it. I could do it. You could do it. And uh, your mom was that role model. You know, it's funny. uh, uh, I have worked all of my life. I have three daughters and I own my own advertising and marketing firm and been a big advocate for women. Obviously, this radio show And my, my daughters were in their early 20s. I said, did I make a mistake? I worked all the time. It was a time period where I was thinking, okay, maybe, you know, somehow I hurt them. And they said, no, we loved what you did. We saw you were happy and excited about the work. And we learned from the dinner table and the conversations we had. So you're echoing, I guess, that same sentiment, Nicole. Mm-hmm. You were lucky to have such a smart and strong mother. I'm, I'm delighted to hear that. And that gave you this sense of, uh, like you said, invincibility. Well, then how did you get interested in the environment? And I, I know early on you worked, I think, at McKinsey and then at Southern California Edison. What you put you in that direction? Yeah, actually, uh, it started, uh, you know, just with a childhood interest in science and math, uh, which I was very fortunate to be uh, very good at. And we had a science fair project and I started to learn about all the different sources of renewables. And this was a long time ago. Um, And uh, it all seemed like a dream, but we could get there. And as I advanced in my career, I remember joining Goldman Sachs and trying actually very hard to get into the renewables group, which I couldn't, uh, I'm sorry, really the energy group at the time, there was no renewables group, Um, the energy group, you know, the way that things go, I, I couldn't get into it, but I joined the private equity group, which was doing some tech renewable related deals. So I started to see that this was a real possibility. And as uh, my career evolved, when I went to business school, um, I just really had a determination to get into the renewable sector. And California at the time was the place where you know, renewables were happening and for all the progress. I, I, everyone should credit California for the worldwide progress because by the mandates that California had, the costs of solar and wind were able to be reduced significantly. And so um, I was right there at that time signing very expensive contracts for Southern California Edison, but it was fascinating. Fascinating. Wow. Wow. So I got my, I got utility experience and I got renewables experience. And, and then from there, you know, um, uh, Edison was a, a fantastic, journey where they kept throwing interesting challenges my way and expanded my aperture um, on both uh, corporate life, but also beyond renewables and energy in general, and then ultimately um, funding me to to invest and develop a a water company. So I I got that that exposure too. Mm. But along the way, I met the folks at Renewable Resources Group who were doing um, both water and energy um, as, as well as agriculture, but all with an impact focus. And it seemed like that was just an incredible match. And so I joined them nearly five years ago um, as one of the the partners over there. That's great. Let me, let me, uh, for our listeners, let me uh, uh, unpack what some of that is. It's uh, so they're an investment firm, right? That develops and arranges agricultural land, water and renewable energy assets in the United States. So they invest in these projects. Can you give us a couple of examples so people can understand exactly what you mean. Yeah. So um, maybe instead of an, an actual example, I'll give like a sample of something. So we might take a look at a at a farm that may have traditionally been growing carrots, let's say. Um, but maybe we have agronomists on our team and we bring them to the site and they test the soil and hydrologists and they say, you know what, this is not the best land for carrots. Um, and so they might say, we might 
uh, be better off if we planted grapes. It, this is really soil that's fantastic for grapes. So why don't we do half of the land with grapes mm -hmm. and then a quarter of the land? Why don't we put some solar panels on it? Um, it it's a good location. The sun is perfect. It'll help the farm and the local network. And maybe for that last quarter of the land, we can um, make it for conservation purposes or we might make a water bank to help store water for our neighbors and ourselves and make the, the property optimize around all those different inputs. And rather, mm -hmm. instead of rather just one thing, carrots, it now is, has a lot of different inputs and potential revenue streams that also can make the, the operation much more sustainable and have a greater longevity to it. Now, when you bring those new insights and approaches, there's also some risk associated. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about agriculture, a lot of businesses, they're risk averse. Mm -hmm. And as you said, the focus is probably on uh, revenue as well as uh, the productivity or uh, efficacy of the work being done on the land. Is there a way to mitigate the risk when you go in and make these kinds of recommendations? Or is it a matter of just laying out what the opportunity is? Well, that's the, the wonderful thing about having um, potentially earning money from the solar panels and also from the, the fruit uh, or, or uh, storing the water, you're able to offset if there are fluctuations in any one of those. So there's a, a ton of ways that you can mitigate it. And in fact, I feel like everything I do is always with a risk mitigated mind. Excellent. Excellent. I think as business people, that's one of the, obviously one of the considerations, but that makes a great deal of sense. Now, I know that Sustainable Development Acquisition Corp is a different organization company that you're part of, right? And uh, it's a, you're, you're, you're applying to be a B Corp. I think it might be good for you to talk about what a benefit corporation is for our listeners. Sure thing. Um, so a public benefit corporation is, is really an, an incredible um, vehicle. And then by extension, what a B Corp is. So um, a B Corp is, is a for-profit company uh, that meets high environmental and social standards um, that range from things like uh, employee benefits to charitable giving, to supply chain practices, to input materials. And they're scored and rated to meet a certain benchmark that's independently verified by the nonprofit B-Lab um, through their B-Impact assessment tool. And these assessments are repeated every you know, uh, three years or so. Mm -hmm. But it's a legal commitment by the companies that they will change their corporate governance to really have this focus and to be accountable to all stakeholders not just shareholders. Got it. So that really means changing the way um, you, you kind of think about who your stakeholder and, ha and how you govern, really. Um, and many companies that people uh, know and love are actual B Corps. So um, The Body Shop or Allbirds or Patagonia. Patagonia is a long time, very long time one. B Corp. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and it's a great, really fantastic, um, you know, Yes, it's a, it's a wonderful way for a company to demonstrate their real commitment. And as you've yeah. been speaking, it's about people, it's about the environment, and it's about profits at the same time. As you said, yeah. you can be a for-profit corporation. You know, you've clearly had a lot of success, Nicole. I'd like to talk in the next segment about successes and failures you might share that could give, give us all some practical tips. And then we'll talk more about the Department of Water and Power and the work you're doing on the commission.
Uh, you're listening to the Renee Frazier Show, Why Women? And we're talking about women leaders. I spoke about the fact that Los Angeles is being led in lots of sectors by women. We're seeing a change in the worldview, a sense of community, respect for the environment, and respect for people that women bring as they lead. We'll be talking with Nicole Neiman Brady, and we'll return with her in just a moment. Welcome back to the Renee Frazier Show. This is Dr. Renee Frazier, psychologist, business owner, who talks with people about why women lead. And we're talking today to Nicole Neiman Brady. Nicole is a CEO and director of Sustainable Development Acquisition Corp. And she is part of Renewable Resources Group. Nicole, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about your successes and failures. In particular, I'm impressed with the way you've moved through your career. What advice would you give to people and what's a, uh, a tactic you use in your career that you could recommend to others? Sure. So th- you have to have resilience. And it's funny because I probably will be talking about resiliency of, of uh, LADWP's infrastructure soon. But I, personal resilience is really what uh, more than anything. You know, when when I pivoted at Edison to start um, this water business, it didn't exactly turn out as expected. Um, it did grow. It was uh, in many ways a huge learning opportunity and educational for me. Um, but in the end, we ended up selling it um, and selling the pieces. And uh, while neither, I, I would neither characterize that as a success nor a failure, there were tremendous learnings and it was um, persistence and resilience that really got me through all of that. And knowing that there are just some things that are outside of your control, but as long as you're going forward and you know what you're focusing on, um, you, can, you can shake them off. Great advice. I love that. Let's turn now and talk about what you're accomplishing with the Department of Water Power and the Commission. Tell us about the work that's being done by the commissioners. For sure. So um, we focus a lot on sustainability. And I happen to have the background in both the water and the power side. And so both of those topics are critical to, to my contributions. And that uh, we're not just talking about sustainability from an environmental perspective, but also from the sustainability of the organization, the resiliency, the ability for LADWP to continue to be here and last for generations. And it really remains as the forefront of everything that LADWP is doing. Um, At the end of the day, its mission is to provide its customers with reliable water and power in an environmentally responsible manner. So that's what our main focus is. And we've um, dedicated a lot of time actually around water resiliency. And one of our big projects um, that we're tackling uh, is uh, expanding our water recycling operations through what we're calling um, Operation Next. And it, you know, the mayor um, got a lot of um, press when he announced in 2019 that that LA would recycle 100% of its city's wastewater. Now, water recycling is not new to LAWP. We've been doing it for many, many years, I think almost 40 years, frankly. Uh, But it's this expanded, uh, holistic look at um, what climate change is doing and how we need to use every job. We need to be more efficient with everything that we have. So uh, this very large project 
um, is going to be at the forefront of um, water recycling in this country. And That's it's really exciting. the next. Yeah, it's really the next frontier in drinking water, um, and it will be eventually a source of drinking water. Uh, and trust me, it's good. It's, yes, and, and I remember, I think in Orange County, they've done that. And I had a, one of our colleagues handle the public relations. You know, I'm in that business. And right. they drank the water, and it was perfectly fine. I want to remind our listeners, we live in an area that's in drought. And uh, droughts are on a regular basis, obviously, that's a, it's a part of the environment that we live in, in a desert. And so we have to realize that our water supply is going to be limited in the sense of what we are able to bring in right from the Sacramento Delta and, uh, and other sources that we have, and even our natural sources as the environment gets warmer and warmer. So this idea of recycling and using our wastewater is very, very smart. Tell me what it involves in terms of building equipment and the length of time this will take, because I know you don't turn on a switch and it happens. No, not at all. So um, you've brought up some very good points, you know, uh, about the the water system and, and the, the local water that we source 70 percent or our goal is to source 70 percent of our water locally. But right now, 90 percent of our water is either purchased or brought in from the LA aqueduct from the Eastern Sierras. So that's a big adjustment to make. Um, and this will really not only uh, help the city become more water resilient, but it'll also help us deal with the immediate drought conditions, which you mentioned. Um, more significantly, what does it entail? So um, many uh, of your listeners may have driven by on the 134 where it meets the five and seen uh, quite a bit of construction um, on the north end of uh, Griffith Park. Yes. And there, there are some very, very large um, water uh, underground reservoirs that are being built and established um, in order to aid with the, the water uh, movement in uh, in Southern California. Uh, it is effectively what this will entail is massive infrastructure investment. So in throughout the San Fernando Valley, we'll be focusing on recharge um, and enhancing our aquifers and improving them so that there is water available for utilization, as well as creating better and broader um, infrastructure for transport. Of the water. And, and when we think about the uh, the water, and I know what you're talking about in the northern end of Griffith Park, I don't think people realize that one of the things that are important is we have to store water. Uh, the aquifers are a source. Obviously, we think of reservoirs, but these are underground storage units. And that's part of the planning forward. Would you say that we could hit this level of resilience in 10 years? What are you thinking from a time frame? Yeah, um, that, that is the goal. I mean, we're trying to get um, to 2030 with significant improvement. And, um, you know, we're charging forward and everything remains on, on track. And even I've been very pleased as one of the commissioners that even the budgets have been keeping in track. Now, obviously, supply chain is affecting everyone these days. Um, so we'll see how that emerges. But uh, in the next coming year, uh, months and years, but 
uh, we're so far on track, which is great. That's excellent. That's excellent. As you said, we see a lot of businesses that have been set back with the supply chain issues and sadly with workers, right, and uh, yeah. not having enough staffing. We don't have a lot of time left in this segment, but I wanted to get your perspective on leadership. Um, I think it's important for us to look at the commissioners. It's all women, which has not been the case before. Can you comment on how you think women in leadership make a difference? Absolutely. I think not only has there never been um, an all-female commission in the city of Los Angeles, I could argue I don't have the evidence that there's probably not an, a company, uh, and you have to remember Los Angeles Department of Water is a $6 billion profitable uh, business um, that is led by all women. So that's an incredible um, feat. An accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And I, I think women are just as capable of bringing other diverse perspectives, but all with a different now angle here that we've really never seen before, um, which, whether it's empath empathy or just um, more familial ties. There's just something different um, about the this group of of people coming together when it when it is all women, uh, and it's and it's really a pleasure to see. And certainly, I have to give kudos to Cynthia McLean Hill, our, our our board president, for really being able to shepherd all of this forward. I sit through some of the uh, meetings, and I hear a a, a, a lot of listening and. Uh, collaboration, mm -hmm. uh, asking for feedback and getting reports. I know there's also been a great deal of emphasis on diversity, equity, inclusion, and allyship. And I support uh, the work. Uh, Cynthia is going to speak about it as well. I, I think it's important that you think about those employees, right? And make sure that there are opportunities for women and men to achieve. But it's no surprise to say that it's been more male dominated as a field. And you experienced that in science and math. How is that being changed, if you will, by the viewpoint of the commission? Um, slowly but surely, but I will tell you, people uh, email every once in a while and just say thank you. They, they feel like they have a voice. They feel like they have access. Um, they feel like there's a difference being made. And definitely some of my colleagues uh, on the commission are really championing the, the DEI opportunities and the difference. And we're really tracking um, what difference we're making. But it's still hard. Uh, women are significantly underrepresented in, in science and engineering fields um, and mathematics. And it's it's a slog. We got to get more women in the pipeline if we're going to get them up in, in through the leadership ranks. So that is uh, we've got to start with our daughters, your daughters, and mine. That's exactly right. You know, I and I have to commend you, Nicole. You gave tribute, you know, tribute to your mom. We only have a few moments left. Is there a piece of advice you'd like to give the young women out there about joining those ranks? And uh, you can do anything, really. I mean, if you put your mind to it, it's, I know that sounds cliche, but I really believe it. There should be nothing, at least for someone coming into the world now who, uh, in the professional world, who can't feel unstoppable. Wonderful. Unstoppable. I love those words. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating. This was Nicole Neiman Brady, and we heard from Cynthia McLean Hill about the all women board of commissioners of the LA Department of Water and Power. I learned a lot about being resilient and strong and how important role models can be in your life to take sustenance from them and be persevering, right? We heard that loud and clear. 
This is Renee Frazier. You've been listening to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show. I run an advertising and marketing firm and an advocate for women. I hope this show has given you some practical tips on what you can do, what your daughters can do, what wives can do to lead and succeed and make the world a better place. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week on the Dr. Renee Frazier Show.